everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Sustainable Investing Perspectives on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Uh, joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, and glad to welcome from our partners at Brown Advisory, Catherine Kroll. Uh, Catherine is a member of Brown Advisory's equity research team, serving as an investment specialist for the firm's large cap sustainable growth strategy. So, Catherine Amantia, great to be with you both. Thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients, our financial advisors here at UBS. We'll get right into it. So, Catherine, in the way of better getting to know your investment analysis, uh, maybe as a good starting point, can you speak to what are some of the key ESG factors that you analyze, and why do you believe that it is important to understand a company's holistic ability to manage both its ESG risks as well as opportunities? Thanks so much, Dan. I'm excited to be here, and I feel like you could say this really at any point in the last few years, but ESG has never felt more important and, and more relevant than it does today, really, when you think about those issues that we'll get into during our discussion that ESG seeks to understand and, and find investment opportunities related to, like the pandemic, like climate change, like a long overdue racial reckoning, I think it becomes clear that there will be leaders and there will be laggards, but that no company is perfect. So for us, it really comes down to understanding from the bottom up how companies are managing risks to these trends or playing defense, but also how they're adding alpha and playing offense, which, you know, at at the end of the day, we believe makes us better investors. We're running very concentrated strategies, and that means we can go quite deep in understanding a number of factors that impact a company's business. Think revenue growth, cost structure, and brand, and how those drivers can then be translated into sustainable or social competitive advantages. Now, obviously, these aren't black or white issues, and understanding them holistically and how they can actually add or hurt performance takes a lot of effort, but we think it's worthy effort. So let's just quickly look at one of those examples. Take supply chain. It's a key input to margins and where we think sustainability can help drive opportunities for both planet and profit by ultimately helping a company do more with less. We've seen an unprecedented number of supply chain disruptions in recent years, many of which have been driven by natural disasters that climate change makes worse. I saw something the other day that there's an estimate that global weather disasters cost over $100 billion in 2021. And companies that are able to mitigate these disruptions in a variety of ways will will be rewarded by the market. I look at the portfolio that that you mentioned that I I work on, large cap sustainable growth, and there are quite a few companies whose supply chains are so resilient or are helping to ensure leadership that they actually see a a competitive advantage. These all benefit the shareholder and help to create, I, I think, a more climate resilient economy. Now, is that something you can find just by applying an exclusionary screen? Not necessarily. And, and that's why we think that the bottom-up research that favors ESG integration within the business model is so important. 
Well, Catherine, thank you for some background, some transparency with respect to your analysis, your process. So, Amantia, to welcome you into the conversation. So, as discussed in the most recent Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication, which, uh, by the way, for our listeners, our clients, is now available up on UBS.com forward slash CIO, uh, this example of managing ESG risks and opportunities in supply chains, of course, a very timely topic, as Catherine was is pointing out, considering the supply chain disruptions many industries are currently experiencing. So, Amantia, could you dive a bit deeper for us into the importance of assessing how a company manages its supply chain as investors work to attain long-term sustainable returns with a holistic portfolio? And maybe a bit further, what are some of the challenges inherent in this analysis? Thank you, Dan, and glad to join you and Catherine today. Um, it's interesting hearing Catherine talk about the, the, the example companies that, that she and her team are looking at, as well as their perception of and, and her comment that there are no companies that are perfect, there are leaders and laggards, so really a relative view on how companies are managing their uh, ESG risks and opportunities. That view really is aligned with how we think about sustainability and, and applying a sustainable investing lens to security selection as well. And now, you know, with all of these examples just broadly of risks and, and additional costs either to specific companies or broadly to economies of disruptions from environmental risks, for example, these have really started in the last couple of years in particular to focus the mind of investors uh, and, 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 and push for more um, credible integration and for more people to, to look to identify best-in-class companies when it comes to how they're managing in their operations these risks and how they're positioning for opportunities. Now, the next step here, and really that's what you're, you're hinting at with your question, Dan, is... Um, Okay, we can look at how company itself is managing um, sustainability topics when it's, it's operations, but what about its supply chains? And how does exposure to sustainability really ripple up to a company from, from areas that may be, um, you know, figuratively or literally far flung away? So, in, you know, and this is the time of the question. Um, supply chains has been one of those words of 2021 that we'll remember, um, similar to the word transitory with reference to inflation. And this has unfortunately been because of these disruptions uh, that we've seen in particular in the second half of 2021 that have been top of mind for investors and, and have largely, in our view, uh, been driven by pandemic-related events. So really this mismatch between surging demand and constrained supply and differentiated responses from different parts, uh, different governments around the world who, who were not, you know, responding differently to COVID-19 were accumulating or aggregating into these mismatches between demand and supply. What's interesting here for us to think about is you know, how a disruption in, in a different part of the world, say in a lot of Asian countries, where some suppliers for end consumer goods companies that were based uh, here in North America, for example, how those were connected and how disruptions at, at, the, at the beginning of these supply chains had ripple effects and, and implications for, for investors sitting in the U.S. 
This for us in, indicates, you know, beyond these shorter term bottlenecks that are pandemic related, the importance for investors to also not just consider sustainability within company operations, but also think broadly and ask the question, you know, are the companies that they're invested in also looking at how their suppliers are, um, you know, keeping up to par with, with, with standards when it comes to sustainability, be it on the environmental side or on employees? Uh, engagement and, and, uh, human capital management and also what is the broader context in, in, in the countries and the places where their suppliers are, um, are located and positioned. There's a variety of different, um, sustainability topics that are what we like to think of as low probability but, but high risk or high impact events that could uh, manifest, you know, that you, you would not see, you would not expect to happen every single time, but if they do happen and manifest, they could have potential significant negative impact uh, on, on uh, the, the value of a company. One example of these types of events or types of instances and, and sustainability risks um, is that of finding of human rights violations and specifically of finding the presence of child or forced labor uh, in downstream supply chains. Um, now, this is, again, as I mentioned, a relatively rare instance um, if we think about the, the, the topic of extreme forced labor as determined and as uh, accounted for by the international labor organization, we know that there's an estimated 21 million people who are victims of um, egregious forms of forced labor in the world and who are part of, of the global um, you know, private economy. So they're being exploited by private enterprises or private individuals and are generating over 150 billion uh, US dollars in illegal profits in the private economy. Again, according to data from the ILO. Now, um, we think, you know, this, this 21 million people, it, it's a significant number in terms of this should not be happening at all, but, but it's a rare event in the context of, of uh, the, the global population. And yet, companies need to be aware of this as a risk, because if this risk does manifest itself, uh, it can have significant consequences. One example of these consequences was in 2020, where allegations of forced labor in the supply chain of a UK-based clothing retailer um, had a significant adverse impact on the company's stock performance. And moreover, they triggered a, you know, next year, 2021 investigation by the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, which put this company at risk of being banned from exporting goods to the U.S. Another example um, was... Um, Again, in the summer of this year, the U.S. Supreme Court was reviewing a case of uh, child labor allegations that was, were brought against two major um, uh, international cocoa and, and, and chocolate retail companies by the citizens, by two uh, citizens of Mali. So what was interesting in this case was that these individuals were claiming to have been victims of forced labor and labor exploitation by suppliers of these two international companies and brought this case to courts in the United States. I should note, in this particular case, the case was it was rejected by the court, but it was rejected on grounds of um, jurisdiction and and kind of whether it was uh, you know the responsibility of this U.S. court to look at this. Uh, and the court was silent on the actual responsibility that the end uh, retail companies uh, would have had potentially on on uh, the, this allegation of, of forced labor and labor exploitation by their suppliers downstream. 
So I'm bringing this example really just um, to note that that for us as investors, it remains important to, to also ask and, and do some additional diligence on what companies are doing on their own suppliers as far as diligence. And this, unfortunately, is one of those things that it, it's almost easier said and, uh, than done. There, we've seen data that looks specifically at how companies are prepared to, to uh, monitor their supply chains on things like forced and child labor. And unfortunately, there's still um, relatively low availability of, of broad-based data and, and also challenges with the companies themselves have in establishing this transparency. That said, I mean, um, in, in our view, this is still an important area that investors need to keep as top in mind, as top of mind. They need to continue to be as part of engagement, as well as you know, for as we evaluate companies that are leader, that are relative leaders, we should also be considering them holistically and, and understanding how they are anticipating these types of challenges in the future. Well, thank you, Amatia, and that example, of course, serves as very helpful context for our clients and our listeners. So. Thank you for that. Uh, Catherine, pivoting back over to you. Now, you previously were speaking about your preference for a very thorough approach to ESG analysis. Now, is there room for divestment within that approach? And if you are not choosing to divest from a certain high emitting sectors, are there other tools that you use in an effort to reduce risk and negative impact? It's a great question. And it's interesting. I think that often divestment is presented in a binary, but I found that divestment can be a really important tool for different investors. And just like many elements of ESG, it, it isn't a one-size-fits-all. When I think about traditional divestment, that broad, top-down screening out of sectors that are, quote-unquote, the, the bad guys, it, it certainly has its time and place. And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to who is the client and what is the investment objective? Certainly, there are elements of divestment in, in, in all forms of portfolio construction when you think about the reason to exit a name. Um, but for, for us at Brown Advisory and specifically large cap sustainable growth, again, we're looking for just 30 to 40 of our highest conviction names. Divestment then really isn't much of a value add because in theory, right, we're we're avoiding many of the same companies that those using a divestment approach are, but we think about it more as what can we invest in that will add to performance and have an impact where we're able to really contribute to some of our, our long-term objectives. All capital has an impact. So the question of what happens after you divest or where do you want to focus reinvesting on, I think is just as important. I, I really do believe that we have the luxury of investing in companies where we do have this conviction. So m- most companies in our universe aren't going to meet our thresholds, whether they be fundamental or ESG. And I think that's why it's so important to, to remember the role that investment style and goal plays when having conversations around divestment. All of that said, to at long last answer your, your very good question more directly, is that engagement is the tool we leverage, and it's an inseparable part of our investment philosophy and process. Because, as I mentioned earlier, you just want to find a company that is perfect. Every company we invest in has room to evolve, even the ESG darlings. And taking an engagement approach that mirrors our investment philosophy, focusing on the long term, 
not moving the goalposts, and really trying to implement progress, not just secure a policy and then move on from it, that's critical. Over time, we've tried to focus on a few key priority issues that we think move the needle for our entire investable universe. So, I, so issues like climate change, DEI, um, ethical AI being among them. And what I've come to appreciate over the, the years is that if you're only engaging with companies in, in your engagement process, you're leaving a lot on the table. So we try to engage with management teams, sure, but just as important at times is to hear from competitors, customers, employees, critics, and issue experts. That's where we're able to gain the confidence in recommendations for actions on the risks we're actually engaging with management on and partner to see progress. Obviously, progress doesn't happen overnight, and just like we wouldn't exit a name because of one bad quarter of performance necessarily, we really encourage a long outlook when it comes to both achieving engagement victories and, and also ensuring that they're upheld over time. Well, thank you, Catherine. So since we're on the topic of divestment, Amantia, now might be a good time to point out that within the most recent Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication, you do outline that the percent of total SI assets and negative or exclusionary screening strategies decreased from 2018 to 2020. So, Amantia, could you provide us with some color as to why this is occurring, this trend, and the importance of engagement in creating an intentionally sustainable sustainable portfolio? Thanks, Ben. And um, it's true. So what we refer to in our publication was data from the Global Sustainable Investment Alliance, uh, which noted that at the start of 2020, negative or, or as you mentioned, exclusionary screening strategies accounted for 45% of total SI assets in developing markets that they track, compared to 65% in 2018, again, according to their data. Um, in 2018, exclusionary-based strategies were the most popular category or type of strategy per their definitions. Um, and so it was interesting to see um, exclusions be overtaken by ESG integration or strategies that incorporate uh, environmental, social, and governance factors in their analysis, um, you know, in, in that two-year period. Now, to answer your question of why or, or what might explain this change, um, I'd say some of it, and, and it is important to note, is that um, GSIA has their own definitions of uh, the, the assets that they account in, under this uh, sustainable investing broad umbrella. And um, and, and others may, may differ in, in terms of the total assets that they account on. However, what's been interesting to note is that the direction of travel and this um, the fact that ESG integration has overtaken exclusions, this seems to be a fact that is consistently proven out by all data providers and, and, and groups that track SI assets across the board. So one part of the answer here is that as sustainable investing has become more mainstream, we've seen a broader acceptance of the market um, of of how sustainability issues can be financially material um, and how they can help provide investors with additional insight and, and a better understanding of um, performance for, for security selection, both on the fixed income and on the equity side. And I think in, in kind of hearing Catherine's remarks and sort of the details that she's giving uh, from the perspective of an equity analyst 
really we're starting to hear that, right? Um, so we're seeing this additional, like ESG can help provide this way to screen in companies as opposed to simply screening out. So I think this may be part of the broader trend, this, this increased sophistication that the market has achieved. Now, to take this topic a little further, um, we've been we've been tracking closely, um, as you know, as we've discussed on this podcast, in particular the question of environmental action and the roads towards net zero carbon emissions. And and broadly, um, you know, a close part of this discussion has been that of the energy transition. How do we uh, transition the sources of energy that we have over time away from fossil fuels, away from the dirtiest sources of energy that have high carbon emissions that are contributing to climate change and towards uh, cleaner sources of energy that, that can help also meet the energy demand of our uh, continuing gr- uh, growing world. So in the context of this energy transition, this is where the divestment question keeps coming back um, because there's been, you know, despite this broad trend that I described, um, there remains intense pressure in particular for investors who are environmentally prone or, or, or who are following this, this conversation to move to divest from fossil fuels in particular. And so I just wanted to address um, a few ways to think about this question of, of divesting from fossil fuels if your thesis and, and if your objective is that of um, being sort of contributing to, to this net zero transition. So one of the points uh, that is important to note is that fossil fuels still account for more than 80% of total energy demand today. And by our estimates, it will take uh, more than 20 years to fully reduce our dependency on fossil fuels. And this is this estimate is assuming that renewable energy capacity continues to grow at the recent very strong pace um, of an average of, of 12% growth per annum. Now, if we think about fossil fuel divestment, we have to recognize that it cannot be matched with our own consumption patterns. And the fact that we expect energy demand to continue to grow overall by and large, and particularly this, uh, we expect to be driven by developing markets. Um, where, 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 where demand for, for energy as economies continue to grow and, and populations continue to grow will increase. And therefore, as we think about, you know, this divest versus invest, uh, question, we, we are, we're positioning and we're seeing an inherent risk that such an investment decision can bring. Secondly, one important thing to consider is, uh, and this really is tied to this, uh, question of energy demand is, uh, you know, as we think of this mismatch of, you know, our consumption demand and as well as our investment priorities, um, what could happen is, is a potential structural underinvestment in fossil fuel supply. If we have this underinvestment and it's not met by the right uh, switch or the right investment and increase in renewable energy capacity, um, we may result or, or we may experience additional energy price volatility, which is really what we've experienced again in recent months. Um, and, and this may bring challenges in terms of availability as well as critically um, from, you know, to, to the perspective of a sustainable investor, it may bring challenges in terms of affordability of energy. And so as we're, as we're advancing on sort of on one field when it comes to environmental objectives, we may be putting at risk um, social inclusion objectives if, if we're driving too far out on, on making energy unaffordable in the short to medium term. Another thing that we're looking at um, in particular is 
um, you know, that, that excluding fossil fuels from, from SI portfolios, um, also means excluding the voice that investors can have in, in influencing the fossil fuels industry to shifting rapidly towards uh, more uh, clean, as I mentioned, sources of energy. And this, again, here, Catherine mentioned kind of the value of engagement. I think she was talking broadly about um, how they work with, with companies that they selected and they, they see a, a positive ESG value proposition in. But if we look at and apply this logic to fossil fuels, we also see an argument for investors to uh, you know, who can engage with the help of engagement-specific focused strategies where engagement is part of the investment thesis um, for them to, to be part of helping to make a difference, essentially. And we've seen this again in the last year with fossil fuel companies uh, being forced to, to move or accept uh, more environment-friendly directors as a result of shareholder action. So these types of examples also kind of bring this additional wrinkle into this question of divest or invest and engage, <laughs> uh, which which potentially may be a choice for sustainable investors and, and, and investors who really care about the environment as their as their primary objective to consider. And now with all of this, I mean I would just again agree with, with Catherine on the final point, which is is to think where does this leave us on the debate when it comes to fossil fuels, ultimately looking at the investors own objectives and priorities will be important. For those who are looking at values alignment as a priority, um, accepting these types of blanket exclusions on the industry may make sense. Um, for those who are looking to be part of, of uh, aligning their values, but also moving towards uh, accelerating the shift to the energy transition, potentially considering um, the engagement focus and target uh, strategies may also be a good option um, so uh, in order to offer strong potential to change. Thank you, Amantia. So another point I want to cover, Catherine, perhaps you can weigh in on this, is the importance of the G in ESG, uh, that being governance, which was the first big focus for responsible investment practitioners. And then over time, E became the larger focus. Now, over the last two years, we have seen uh, the S gain prominence in light of the racial and social justice focuses, not only here in the U.S., but around the world as well. Uh, many investors say that the G continues to undergird everything they do. But Catherine, do you think that there are certain governance factors that ESG investors need to focus most, especially at, at this time? Well put, Dan. I, I think governance highlights just how important an intersectional approach to ESG is. Governance in a silo, as, as you said, obviously is foundational to all investments, at least for us. You need to be able to trust management teams. You need to have conviction in a company's culture. But where I think we can double-click is in how governance is being applied to bolster issues companies claim to prioritize. For example, is compensation tied to the sustainability metric a company broadcasts in their CSR? Are managers incentivized to not just attract diverse talent, but to retain them and to promote them? We hear so much about DE&I at the board level, the, the, the kind of S in ESG, as you said, at the board level, and that intersection of governance and social issues. But a revolving door, which sometimes is what it is, of a woman director isn't enough to transform a culture. 
So as important as gender diversity on the board is how a company is structured to ensure diverse perspectives that are actually being embedded into everyday decision-making. And this is important for the sake of innovation, for the sake of winning the war for talent, and for long-term shareholder value in, in our belief. So it's my hope that we continue to see governance as a way to add accountability to a number of ENS issues that matter rather than to merely regard it in a vacuum. That's how we can give it teeth. And the good news is we're seeing it play out more often. I read recently that over 50% of the S&P 500 companies use some form of ESG metrics in their executive compensation plans. So we're trending up. Thank you, Catherine. Amantia, curious to hear your thoughts along these lines as well. So in addition to these factors, what are some of the other trends and governance that investors should be mindful of? And Amantia, why should investors care about company governance beyond the fact that well-managed companies tend to boast better returns? Sure. So, um, and, and really not much to to add here, as, as I think Catherine really nailed the answer on this one. But one thing that we've noticed is that uh, governance around the world are taking another second look uh, or really a continued look on, on company governance, specifically from from the angle of shareholder protection. Um, and this really is, is in, in some ways answering your second question, Dan. So we think that corporate governance is, is a critical issue for investors, not only, as you say, because a well-managed company is more likely to, to um, be a more robust investment, but also because it ensures that the interests of shareholders and management are aligned, um, that shareholders are treated equally, and the rights of minority owners in particular are protected. And Speaking about trends, what we've noticed recently in particular has been in China, for example, uh, where there's been additional attention on behalf of the government um, to look at corporate governance of, of Chinese companies. Um, and this has coincided with the, the launch of um, sort of the first Chinese class action lawsuit system back in the summer of 2020, which has allowed individual investors and shareholders to start taking legal action against companies for financial misconduct. This trend in China which is sort of culminated in recent weeks and months in, in some high-profile examples where um, companies' uh, chairmen and and uh, executives have been found um, guilty of of not meeting the kind of the, the expectations of shareholders um, and therefore have had to be sentenced to, to prison and, and have also be, been fined. These recent examples in China really have just sort of highlighted again the importance of continuing to look at governance um, from from the investor perspective and 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 thinking of it as as this kind of signal. And you know I'm mentioning China here as the more recent development, but it's not just in that part of the world that we're seeing this trend, um, we're, we've also noted how the European Union's uh, sustainable finance disclosure regulation um, features good governance as the prominent component of sustainable investing. And, and they look at sound management of structures, at employee relations, at whether, you know, remuneration of staff is fair. And importantly, to, to sustainability, um, they look at tax compliance as good governance um, elements that companies need to disclose on as well as investors need to track and, and be aware of. So really, um, these are some of the, the key areas and, and um, governance um, has always 
been in some ways has been historically the area of ESG that has been um, most readily taken up by the market and investors at large. And what we're seeing recently is almost like a reminder as well as a refresh of the expansion of the concept of governance to include broadly um, the governance of sustainability areas as well as governance as responsibility to shareholders. Today we've been joined by Catherine Froh, Investment Specialist with Brown Advisory, as well as Amatia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Amatia, Catherine, thank you again for your insights today. Appreciate it. Great joining you. Thanks for the time. Thank you so much. Take care. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.